Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives、uh, to share their unique insights on policy-related issues. In our world today, I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao.、Uh, our topic today is financial literacy again, and and just to start with some quick facts:、uh, 44% of Americans do not have enough cash to cover a $400 emergency.、Uh, 38% of American households have credit card debt. Fifty-six percent of Americans have less than ten thousand dollars saved for retirement. So it's a huge problem in our society today,、uh, and I'm so excited to have a very prominent voice、uh, joining us、uh, in the studio today.、Uh, I, I guess we, I said that we invite scholars and policymakers on the show, but today we have a celebrity. Apparently,、uh, nice. Big, I was going to say a chump. You、uh, said celebrity. <laughs> that works.、Uh, our guest today is Mr. Jeff Kreisler. He is an award-winning comedian, a best-selling author, and a champion. Uh, for behavioral economics and science, so his first book w- was the satire "Get Rich Cheating,"、uh, which was very famous. You can still get it on Amazon.、Uh, and his second book is "Dollars and Cents: How We Misthink mis- Money and How to Spend Smarter," which is available in 22 countries.、Uh, he's also the editor in chief of PeopleScience.com, a thought leadership platform for、uh, applying behavioral science. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today.、Mr. Thanks、Kaiser. for having me. It's an honor. Awesome. So. Uh, so I just interviewed、uh, Mr. P. Calhoun、uh, slightly before this, and we talked about financial literacy issues, sort of also giving our listeners a, a bit of a background. But would you mind also helping us give your version of the introduction of the current problems we're seeing,、uh, how you think、uh, you, your background led you to advocating for financial literacy education, and、uh, what what do you involvement in all this? Sure. Well. Uh, my involvement is it's not my fault, <laughs> but、uh, I definitely have seen it from a lot of different angles. You know, my my background involves being a stand-up comic and writing this book, Get Rich Cheating, which is what led me to connect with a well-known behavioral economist by the name of Dan Ariely, and then work on this latest book. And throughout all that, there's been a theme through my work、uh, about sort of the way that our inability to think things through leads us to make poor decisions. And sometimes that's just by our own misinformation, and sometimes it's by other people taking advantage of us. You know, the point of the Get Rich Cheating book, which was a satire—I don't actually advocate <laughs> cheating—was、uh, that there are people that can be taken advantage of because they don't know what they're doing. And obviously, financial decision making and financial choices are a big area that's true.、Um, so I, I've sort of seen this in a lot of ways throughout my career, even back when I was a student here at Princeton many years ago.、Um, You, your listeners can do the math. How long ago that was? I don't like saying the number.、Uh, that we don't always have any idea what we're doing when we make financial decisions, and you know the numbers you talked about about people not being able to take a four hundred dollar hit and people not saving for retirement.、Uh, there's even some studies I've seen about you know people expect to have to work until they're eighty in order to save for retirement, but average life expectancy is seventy eight. So you're gonna you know work negative two years. I mean, the, the numbers are out there for anyone to see how poorly people are planning for the future and even just existing in the present.、Uh, but what I think is is much more fascinating and sort of what this book is about and my talk today and a lot of what I'm advocating for is that we simply just don't. Recognize our own flaws when it comes to financial decision making, the way that we handle uncertainty, and there is a science, this whole field of behavioral economics that recognizes and tries to explore and define the ways that we do make these mistakes, what principles and biases and traps、uh, affect us and have us make poor decisions, and then the hope is that, excuse me, the hope is that. We can recognize those biases and traps, then develop systems so that we can improve our decision making, the ultimate outcome.、Um, I. Don't believe that we can change human nature. 
I don't think we can make uh, smarter, better people. But I believe if we recognize human nature, we can then create systems and tools and mechanisms so that our human nature is used for our own good instead of being used against us. Uh, let's talk about human nature for a second. Sure. How does human nature prevent one from being financially literate? There are there are tons of ways. Uh, <laughs> I think at a baseline, the human nature makes it so that we want to take the easy way when we're given a choice, uh, and that's fine. Uh, that's not you know some people might think that's a way to to shame us, but you know that's just you know fight and flight, right? We're going to react instinctively. So if we're given an option that is, hey, spend uh, you know hours researching a purchasing decision and trying to figure out all these mechanisms and uh, the interest rates and who's infected and all these things that are really hard and complex to know, or go by what the sale price is, we're going to go for that easy way. Or go by what your uncle told you or go by what you did you know, two months ago, we're going to always go for that easy solution. Um, we're sort of floating in the sea of uncertainty and we'll grab whatever tree branch floats by to, to help us. And the financial world and, and monetary decisions, it, it's full of uncertainty. No one knows. Uh, I, I give talks to uh, wealth advisors, people that advise high net worth individuals. They tell them how to invest their money, billions, millions of dollars. And I always find that when I talk to like these firms, someone will tell them, hey, our highest performer, the advisor who does the best with other people's money, makes a ton of mistakes with his or her own money. Because... It's easy to tell someone, hey, according to the spreadsheet and these numbers, you should do this for your retirement and your kid's college. But then when it comes to me, when it comes to my kids and my retirement, that's me. That's personal. There's emotion in there. And suddenly that emotion, even for those of us that are professional and know what we're doing and know what we should do, that emotion starts to cloud. And that's when the humanity comes in because our human nature is affected by emotion. It's affected by uncertainty. And it leads us to poor decisions. Uh, let's talk about wealth advisors uh, for a bit, or just even the financial services industry in general. I mean, uh, do you think there are vested interest uh, in the financial services industry that wants people to keep being financial illiterate? Uh, that's that's a good question, and it's a bit of uh, a loaded question. I, I would say, broadly speaking, Yes, there are interests that want people to be financially uh, illiterate because then they can provide them a service that they claim provides that financial solution. Uh, I don't believe that across the board financial advisors are evil or have ill intent. I think that many of them, and I, I won't pretend no percentages, many of them t understand they're actually helping people. Right? Financial advisors that can take someone that has no idea what to do with their money and help them get to a place where their future and their kid's future is secure and they don't have to stress, and they don't have to worry, and they can enjoy their life. That is a tremendous gift that a financial advisor can give. At the same time, layered within that are fees and our opportunities to make money and sell products. So there are conflicts of interest there, and I think that the uh, system is prime for those that might have less altruistic in, uh, intentions to take advantage of. I like to believe that the majority of financial advisors are guided um, on some strong level by that desire to help others. Uh, I just also know that sometimes that's not the case. Uh, do you have any view on what uh, the regulatory regime should be, especially when it comes to regulating the financial services industry uh, to help promote financial literacy? Sure. I think uh, there are some things that should be very basic. Um, conflict of interest should be disclosed, right? I'm selling you this product, uh, this investment vehicle, and by the way, I get 10% on every item I sell or whatever the conflict is. Like, let people know that. Uh, I think there should be 
a level of um, understanding that when someone sells a product, oftentimes if you sit across from a financial advisor or a car salesman or a mortgage lender or anyone in these complex transactions who explains all these details, you as the listener, like that's really overwhelming. And what's also overwhelming is we're not really trained to say, oh, sorry, I don't understand that, or to ask questions you know, or to admit that we don't know what's going on. A lot of time we just say, no, 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 yeah, we recognize a few words. So providing some sort of um, checkbox or mechanism to make sure that what's being explained is understood, right? Like if you take out this loan, you're going to have to pay back over the life of a loan twice as much or whatever the number may be. Um, I think that, you know, and, and I want to admit that I don't remember the exact details here, but, you know, after the uh, collapse, um, the Great Recession, there were a lot of reforms put in to make the financial industry more responsible, have a fiduciary duty to their clients. I think a fiduciary duty is paramount. But I believe that recently those have been rolled out by rolled back by the current administration, and I, I'll try not to get political, but I think that's a big mistake, uh, because having a fiduciary duty to your client's interest, meaning like you have to put your client first above all else, is paramount to something like financial industry, because it is an area where the end clients are are so in the dark, and there there's uncertainty, and um, there's sometimes fear. And so the financial advisors should have a duty to act in their client's best interest, and that's not always the case. So regulations, I think, should make that mandatory. They can still make tons of money by being nice to their clients. Got you. What about the uh, sort of the opinions about priority? You know, they say we roll back certain regulations because the other priorities in the financial industry that we're helping, we, we need to deregulate. And, and if... You know, the financial literacy is the sacrifice midway. I guess it just have to be sacrificed for higher priorities. So how, how big a priority is financial literacy right now? How big is it or how big should it be? Sure, let's do both. Uh, I would say it's not a high priority. I think that when people probably broadly think of financial literacy and they probably don't use that term, it's more basic stuff like household budgeting, which is important, but it's not necessarily financial planning, um, investing and saving and how to think about rainy day funds and how to make sure you can cover that $400 expense. It's more like, you know, week to week budgeting. And that's important, but I think that providing some further literacy is also important because there are, in many ways, our financial infrastructure in this country is a series of middlemen upon middlemen. And understanding what it is that the consumer is trying to accomplish will help them see where these middlemen are taking sort of a cut that maybe they don't need to. I mean, in a very, like one very basic example, there's tons of studies that show if you just invest in an index fund, and an index fund is basically um, an investment vehicle that sort of takes a bunch of, sort of approximates what the market does. Just invest in that, leave it alone, you're going to outperform some huge percent, 90% of these actively managed funds, right? These funds where people are always making trades and always making money off making the trades. Um, but that's not something that people know. And so you might, if you know that, you might make the choice, oh, I'll invest in this fund, and maybe I have less chance of becoming a billionaire out of it, but my money is secure. Um, so that's just sort of one example of the level of literacy that I think should be out there and, and is not. Um, I think the government shutdown at the beginning of 2019 sort of really highlighted the issue for a lot of people. Americans really depend on the weekly paychecks, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I think according to Federal Reserve, 40% of people in the U.S. don't have $400 set aside for an emergency. 25% uh, have nothing saved for retirement. 
Um, so do you think there's some something more inherent about, I guess, the American welfare system uh, or just even Americans' mentality when it comes to issues like this? Because w- if we talk about financial literacy programs, people say, oh, I need my freedom. I don't want the government just tell me that mm. I have to manage my money in this way. I don't want to give the government this and that. Uh, so is, is there some sort of inherent bias? Against having <laughs> help? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think there may be, and I think it sort of depends on the framing. I think this goes beyond financial literacy, but a framing of help and government assistance is seen as uh, you know, the nanny state or whatever the various terminology is. And yes, some people will react against that. Uh, but I would argue that it's in people's interest to at least hear what is suggested. Uh, you know, this idea about the the four hundred dollar uh, emergency fund. What is important about that is that's not just like lower income earners. It it cuts across. I mean, not like the top one percent, but middle class families, upper middle class families, people that earn a decent amount of money also have trouble with the emergency. So it's not just that people aren't earning enough; it's that they're not knowing what to do with their money. Uh, you know, I have a um, I have a friend who works at a at a TV network, and he was a high level producer, and he was making like three hundred three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, which is great money. He's making that money, uh, and he'd been doing that for like fifteen years or something, and then his job was downsized, and he was freaking out because he didn't know what he was going to do. Now, by all rights, you've been making that much money for fifteen years; you should be able to retire, right? <laughs> if your job gets cut, you should be fine. But he was not being responsible with his money. He didn't really know what he was doing. And, and it wasn't anything obvious like he had like a gambling and coke problem. It was just, you know, he had like a bigger he, – he bought everything up to his means, right? He bought the bigger house and needed a summer house and all these things. Um, and my point being that like this, this lack of financial literacy, this lack of understanding about money cuts across income levels. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a really fascinating study that, that we highlighted on this website, maybe we'll talk about later, called People Science that I run. Um, PeopleScience.com. Check it out. Subscribe. Of course. <laughs> and uh, it's all about what we call financial precarity, which is this idea that we're living precariously, right? Paycheck to paycheck. An illness is going to knock us out. Um, you know, a, a, a relative's illness that we have to care for, an, an accident, and how it's affecting our productivity. I mean, the, the, the study looks at how that financial stress makes us less productive and less safe at work. Uh, and, and the reason I'm bringing it up now is because the study sort of looked across income levels. And one of the solutions, obviously, is, you know, pay people more and they're going to do better. Well, that is important. But at the same time, uh, give them schedules, or work schedules that are reliable so they know how much money they're going to make um, every week or every month. Uh, provide them education opportunities about finance. Give them, uh, you know, the op- opportunity to invest in rainy day funds and savings accounts and retirement savings, uh, because everyone is affected by this. And, you know, one of my, del- my one of my current delusions is that studies like this that show it affects productivity and safety will inspire businesses to provide part of the help and the solution. Uh, because you know, if we just rely upon ourselves or the government to provide the education and the tools, that's not enough. That really the private sector has to get involved, and I think they should get involved, because if 80% or whatever the number of, of people working in a job are stressed out and not paying attention to their job, that's bad for the business. And it's not just give them more money, it's give them the tools and the knowledge to make better decisions. Um, you just mentioned how financial illiteracy problem uh, cut across income levels, which I think is a fascinating viewpoint. But 
just to push you back a little bit, mm-hmm. what if, what if somebody pe- some people say uh, for a worker who has uh, who lives on minimum wage, uh, she she or he would just have to live paycheck by paycheck. It's just so hard to make ends meet already. And uh, if you like make fifteen dollars an hour, eight hours a day. You know, five days a week, you make like what thirty-five thousand dollars a year. That, that that barely covers anything, and and you struggle so much in life. You simply don't have the time uh, to to think about financial、uh, issues, or or even though you get financially literate,、uh, well, what can you do about it? Like, so, well, it, it's an excellent point, and and I think that's you know while these issues do cut across income levels, there are those that are in、um, more of what we would call a scarcity condition. Right where it's it's nothing that they're doing、um, that it's not even their mistakes necessarily that are putting them in this. They're not buying、exactly. too big a house.、Right. It's that they're not making the money. Exactly. A- and to those for those people, I would say the importance is it goes beyond education and tools. It goes to systems. Right. You know, having a job where you're getting paid fifteen dollars an hour and providing an, an easy option where you can do a savings account. Right. There there are some states that do these、um, sort of savings lottery. Right. If you put twenty five dollars each week into a savings account, you get entered into a lottery, and each week we draw, and somebody might win a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars more, like just a small little amount, and it's an incentive to get people to save. And then what ends up happening is suddenly, you know, you do now for people that are really tight on a budget, twenty twenty five dollars makes a big difference. So maybe it's ten, but even ten dollars a week is five hundred dollars at the end of the year, and there's your four hundred dollars that you can't cover. Right. And then you put it in an account with interest, and by over time it grows. Now, is that enough money to send your kid to college? Is that enough money to retire on? No, but for people who are struggling to break even, it can help them get their head above water, and then we can start using a different set of tools to help them swim better. And I just made that metaphor up, but it <laughs> works for me. The comedian is sort of coming out. Yeah, that's great. So, so how do we address this issue systemically? I mean. It, Inequality is such a big debate across the United States. I mean,、right. people talk about it in economics, political science, philosophy. So,、uh, I, I guess inequality and financial literacy. How how do those two sort of come together? Well, I think again, there's a there's a stratification、uh, in that certain groups of people, certain income levels, need this these tools to just survive and be in a position where they could potentially then thrive. And there's a group of people that. Um, sort of need these tools and education to stop making the stupid mistakes and take advantage of the income levels that they do have.、Um, so you know, recognizing that, I think gearing it differently can、uh, help create more equality.、Uh, I think that the same tools and the same approach and the same framing doesn't work for everyone, right? Like you can't、uh, talk about saving twenty dollars a week to someone who has、um, a second home and you know lives. Does really well, right? So you have to recognize where people are, and and one of the things, in broadly speaking, about、um, behavioral science, this field of behavioral economics,、um, interchangeable in my mind, although someone argued not the phrases,、uh, <laughs> is that it it is all context driven. That you have to recognize that each person in each group sort of has different things that trigger their poor behavior and their poor decisions.、Um, so, to the extent that we can provide.、Uh, Every group, or every individual, or every family, the tools to sort of diagnose what their particular issues are. Like, I spend too much money on shoes. I spend too much money at restaurants.、Uh, you know, the things that are choices. Then you can create solutions for them,、uh, and then providing for those people that are living in scarcity the the social tools 
to prevent that scarcity from drowning them. I mean, you know, stuff, uh, you know, uh, family leave, uh, pre-K, uh, the health care, like these things that are the things that really knock people out, right? People that are just barely have their head above water. They're sick for a week and they miss work and they get fired and they have a speeding ticket that they got to go to court for. And it's just like it's this vortex. And so if we can provide the tools to prevent people from drowning, then we can start having everybody swimming and help everybody swim better. And I'm going to go write a book about this metaphor. Of course. Swimming. About the tools that you just said, mm-hmm. right? We provide tools to help people out. Uh, there's a lot of information going on around the Internet, right? We always hear the story of how somebody won $100 million of the lottery and, and went to some random family uh, financial advisor and, and got scammed. So there's so much uh, information out there and tools out there. What if the government comes in today and says, I have a, this is one set of tools or one set of mandates, one type of uh, financial literacy program everybody should do? Uh, do you think that'd be a good idea to to handle this? Well, I I think there is a uh, a middle ground that I would have, which is that the government can come in and provide uh, an endorsed set of tools or systems, and say, you know what, this is this is what we think. These are the authorities that that back us up. If you want to go elsewhere, you have the free choice to do so. But you know, here's a system that is sort of a default system for you. Um, I I think that it would be it would be foolish to attempt a total blanket system for everyone because it's not going to fit for everyone. Um, some people just have, have maybe do have that financial knowledge or skill or insight to, to do something different. Um, but I would love to see uh, people, you know, we're, we're sort of uh, an indivis- individualism is trumped, uh, trumped, that's Freudian, uh, <laughs> trumpeted here uh, in America. Uh, but sometimes that means uh, leave people to their own devices a little too much and providing a system that, that offers them help and assistance can only help and assist. Got you. Awesome. Uh, maybe this question is a little bit also related to behavioral sure. science. So I, I guess one big problem in education is that knowledge erodes over mm-hmm. time, right? As, as human species, we don't, we're not very good at passing down sort of knowledge. And, and some would say that, you know, it's, it's also not education if you can't test someone's understanding afterwards. You can't physically give them a test. Why do the education? So... Uh, how and, and some propose this potential solution with the concept of just-in-time financial education, which basically means that um, you, you make sure you teach the material repetitively and you ensure that the knowledge acquired in the classroom is immediately applied uh, once it is learned. Uh, so uh, I, I guess how, when and how should people get educated in, on, on finance? Uh, and do you believe that people should learn it when... Uh, it's most relevant or as soon as possible. Sure. Uh, and I, I, I guess Ms., maybe we could tie it up with behavioral science, some sure. of your observations as well. Well, I, I think there is a great set of questions because there are tons of studies and just many people's experiences say financial literacy, teaching people what how to make financial decisions or, and what decisions to make doesn't really work. And part of it is because you teach someone in college or in high school or even someone in the working world uh, how to make a certain decision they might get it when you're explaining it to them, but unless they put it into practice, they're never going to really learn it. I mean, this is true of any field, right? You could sit in a classroom and teach someone how to drive. So you push the pedal here, you turn the wheel that, but that doesn't mean anything once they get in a car, right? You have to teach them sort of while they're in the car, just in time, right? Have them work it out. So I would totally agree that to the extent financial literacy as a, here are the decisions to make here, this is what you should do must be taught and tied to actually practicing it 
Otherwise, you're not going to learn. Right? Same, same with learning how to play basketball. I can tell you to dribble the ball and to shoot the ball with your elbow in and all that, but that doesn't mean anything until you get out there and actually have to do it. Um, and we're once we graduate from college and are in the real world, we actually have to do it. We have to pay rent and save and all this. What I would argue, um, because financial literacy has been shown to be so ineffective, is uh, in addition to changing sort of the timing of it and the reinforcement, um, is you know I'm self-interested in this answer, but is to is to look a little deeper and you know on my book and our talks, we don't really say what you should do. We sort of say why you're doing what you're doing, and we show people these are the, this is why you fall for sale prices. This is why you pay too much for credit cards. This is why uh, you fall for brand name prices. And what I've seen so far in, in the time that my book has been out is people reach out to me and say, hey, you know, I hate you because I can't go shop at JCPenney anymore because all I see is that their sale prices are tricking me. And I kind of take that as a pride. I'm like, okay, so you're not getting fooled by sale prices. I'm sorry, I, you know, I ruined that game for you. Uh, and, and, you know, my belief is providing that knowledge of our human, uh, human nature and our humanity is a more effective way than just giving a set of rules. It's like if you if you provide rules for everyone, um, we will sort of default to that and not think about the why. And if you provide like a more of a cultural way of looking at it, more of a, an, an internal uh, way of, of dealing with financial decisions, a more thoughtful way, a, more, a different framework for when you stress about what financial decisions, which is what we try to do with our book and, and my work, uh, then you're going to more likely affect people at those um, unexpected moments. Right. Like it's easy to like a certain specific decisions. You can make a rule. Oh, you know, never take out a mortgage. that's more than five percent or whatever the number is. But most of our financial decisions that cause us trouble are not prescribed by a set rule. We read in a textbook three years ago. They're, they're in the moment. And if you provide them the framework for sort of understanding what forces and biases are affecting them at that time, um, you're going to give them a chance to really provide uh, themselves a better outcome. Uh, we talked a lot about you know behavioral science and human nature. Uh, that kind of makes me question the efficacy of education just in general. <laughs> I mean, like how you, do do uh, do do you actually think we'll actually get there? To, like one day that people are all financially literate, and or I, is it a bit utopian? I don't necessarily think we're all going to be financially literate. I think that if we can all uh, understand how we fall for uh, psychological traps of our own design and others, and we start to recognize, oh, the sale price, I'm not actually saving money, I'm spending money. And we start to recognize our own behaviors, and Apple Pay is really cool, it makes spending easier. Oh, wait, it makes spending easier. Right? <laughs> if we start to recognize these things, I think we're going to catch up. I think that like, just the, by the nature of our, our world, the forces of making money are always going to be creating the next thing. So it's a constant, it's always going to be a constant dance, but a lot of financial tools are evolving so rapidly that our knowledge is falling even farther behind. So hopefully we can catch up with our self-awareness and our own sort of systems for better decisions um, so that those that are designing systems that make us have worse decisions, we at least have a fighting chance against them. So how do you get into um, financial literacy issues and also behavioral science? I mean, you're... Just Burning Man. I was at Burning Man. I just, <laughs> I felt the vibe, man. It was like, I saw the fire look like a dollar sign, and I was like, take me. See, it's pirate drowning in the sea. You know, it's all the metaphors. <laughs> it all ties are all, together. All ties together. Thank God, this is better than therapy. Exactly. <laughs> so how how'd you get into it? I mean, you went to Princeton. You became a comedian. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how did that all come about? 
so Princeton uh, was great. I studied economics here, although I was not. It didn't connect for me. Um, I also studied uh, politics and Russian studies. I got a, 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 double, a triple joint degree, I guess you call it. And uh, then I went to law school, and it was another form of decision making, and it didn't connect. So I went and I did stand up comedy, which looks at human nature, right? The, the stand up comedian says, hey, "You have noticed people do the stupid thing," and then the behavioral scientist says, "Yeah, and this is why." And so I didn't know that behavioral science was a thing. I was doing my stand-up comedy. I was talking about a lot about politics. I started writing about business humor for um, Jim Cramer's TheStreet.com. And through that column, I then got approached uh, to write my first book, which is Get Rich Cheating, which is a satire. And I took that on the road as a fake wealth building seminar. And I had a spot on MSNBC every month talking about the cheating of the month in character, right? My character was like Stephen Colbert meets Tony Robbins. Exactly, and, yeah. Uh, and then... Dan Ariely, the author of Predictably Irrational, someone your, your listeners should know. He's a Duke. Yeah, he's a Duke. Um, he does a ton of great work in this area, one of the leading thinkers. He got a copy of Get Rich Cheating, invited me to guest lecture at his class. And my lecture was in, in character. And he wouldn't say here's a comedian. He'd say, here's somebody with some unique wealth building ideas. And I would go and I would tell these Duke business students, hey, you should cheat. Right? Cost-benefit analysis. Nobody gets caught. One guy, Bernie Madoff. Everyone else gets millions. And, you know, at some point, there'd be a small group of them who are like, yeah, you make a good point. <laughs> and it wasn't that they were, like, immoral or bad people. It's just that money messes with our heads. Of course. And, and it was a light bulb moment for me because, you know, I'd done my own sort of amateur research, my training from Princeton, you know, digging in. I wrote this book, as much information as I could, and I saw these patterns. And then suddenly I gave these talks and I met Dan and I saw his work and those of his peers. I'm like, oh, behavioral science does that. It combines this traditional supply and demand numbers and spreadsheet uh, economics, which is you know great, but isn't necessarily how real humans behave with real human psychology and decision making. And so you know I just sort of found it fascinating from the perspective of looking at you know cheating, how people sort of make uh, poor decisions based upon how money messes with them from comedy, which is a lot about like human hypocrisy and, and, and sort of just humanity and all these things rolled up into behavioral economics. And I just sort of fell in love with it. And uh, I'm sort of blessed or cursed by um, that, that career, if you call it that, or that mindset where like I love learning and I love increasing, but once I hit a plateau, I start to get a little bored. So, you know, I was where I, I was at a plateau with other things, and I was like, let's learn about this behavioral science, and it clicked, and Dan and I worked on some projects and put out this book, and now I'm doing more of it with this people science website I run and speaking and hopefully helping people, and uh, it's been pretty cool. That's amazing. How did you make, I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated by the transition because you, you didn't get a PhD in economics, mm -hmm. and stand-up, I mean, I, I do stand-up comedy, and I met a lot of stand-up comedians when I do open mics, and uh, go on some tours and stuff, and and, and stand-up comedians aren't usually the most, I, I, not the environment where you have the most intellectual discussions <laughs> about economics at, at, at you know two a.m. So yes and no, you, yeah I I, right? I would, you know there's Ezra Klein was it Ezra not Ezra Klein that's a political guy, E coming somebody better than me <laughs> once said that the artist is the antenna of the race, right that the artist sort of sees what's coming next and. Some of the most brilliant stand-up comedians. No, you're not going to sit and talk to them about Keynesian economics or about supply side versus whatever. You're like, you're not going to talk policy, but like they see patterns, and that's sort of why they became comedians because right. they're that fly in the wall that see how people are behaving. The, the essence of human nature. Right. Right. and that's for me. That's why I connected to behavioral economics, not traditional, not traditional economics. Uh, 
was because it is like what are, what are these crazy humans doing like with all these little with these little bugs just <laughs> flitting around and and so while I would agree that you know particularly uh at a level of the struggling open mic and and people that the uncertainty that the industry of comedy creates the the art of comedy and the art of observing humans and and reflecting humanity back to an audience of people that then recognize that so much that they have an emotional reaction of a laugh I don't mean to sound too clinical but that's what the comedy is to me those are people that have a brilliant insight now do they have the tools and the fortune and the privilege that I had to then translate that into talking about behavioral economics? Maybe not. But again, then again, like I had the fortune and the privilege to stumble into things and to have a Princeton education and to sort of have these tools from Princeton and from law school that like were were the ways to study things and think about things that I wasn't really using as a lawyer or anything else and, and were just sort of churning. Right, I had these. I used to say um, most people have like a squirrel running on a track in their brain, and I had many of them. So I'd have these squirrels. These, you know, I knew how to write an undergraduate thesis here. I knew how to do research. I knew how to like break things down from law school, and f you know, I, I wasn't always a pleasant person to be around because I would just get in my head and I would, you know, I, I wasn't a jerk, but like I was just, you know, in my head a lot, and you know, maybe I rolled with it more than other performers that didn't have that. But um, I would broadly speaking defend my my fellow comedians. How dare you, sir! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm probably one of them. I mean, I, there's, comedy is all about, you know, breaking down the essence of things yeah. and you discover patterns exactly as... And as, simplifying, as right? And, and saying, like, you look at a whole, you break, look at a whole, like, relationship and you break it down into, like, a one-sentence funny line. Right. And, and that's how observational comedians yeah. or even dark humor sort of comes about. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so let's talk about pe People Science. How How's that project going? Uh, what do you do with it right now? Sure. So PeopleScience.com is a website and social feeds and a newsletter and a live events uh, that is about applied behavioral science. Uh, it came about as the, the publication of the book was approaching. I wanted to sort of find a way to continue to advocate for this as a, as a tool for people to solve problems and this opportunity came along and we don't just look at financial decision making we look at uh, decision making in terms of like employee engagement and um, habits that people have and event design and, and all these other uh, elements and features and we take academics and we take practitioners and we take journalists and we make it very accessible so people maybe all their only exposure to behavioral scientists is like listening to this podcast hello 27 people and uh don't make fun of us like that <laughs> sorry 27 million people <laughs> and uh, uh you know whatever it is the 27 people are are, are worthy of our time um, of and they're gonna grow uh even if they don't have a deep knowledge, I want to make it an accessible thing so they can learn more and they can see what's possible because I really, you know, it's not off-the-shelf solutions. You can't just say, oh, I have a company that doesn't do this, and I say, here, apply loss aversion. or so. It's it's all context-driven. There's a process of experimentation, but to me, there there's so much potential in this study of how humans really make decisions mapped to our sort of known economic decision-making framework. Um, that can really make a positive change for people and organizations and society. So I, I try to have that conversation on people science with our different articles and roundtables and other events. So, so what's your thesis on our society, humanity, uh, people's behaviors? Because I, I noticed that often comedians, they sort of have a unique framework 
to look at the to look at the world. I, I think scholars and economists sometimes are a little bit cautious in, in terms of coming up with very generalized statements like, "Oh, this is how humanity is." Oh, we're all. But communists aren't afraid to say, "Oh, we're all screwed." Like <laughs> in a couple of decades, you know, you know, it's still communists say talk about those things. So, what's your thesis? Uh, uh, that's a good question, and I will admit I don't have it as pithy and succinct as I should, but I, <laughs> um, I remain optimistic in the face of evidence that my optimism is unwarranted about uh, the power of the human mind and the human community. I think that we are dumb, but we can be smarter. And I would love to make critical thinking cool. I, I think that humans, whether they've gone here to Princeton or they had never opened a book in their life, have the innate ability to stop and think and, and reason and communicate in a way that lifts theirs and their community's knowledge to a higher place. Uh, is behavioral science, behavioral economics sort of the future of how we examine human nature, human society? Uh, and because, the, I mean, I went to this talk by this, I mean, the AlphaGo DeepMind founder, Hassabis, mm -hmm. and they were talking about how using algorithms to figure out human minds and, and de completely de deconstruct um, uh, how our minds work. And that was all using a very techno technological, uh, technical way of looking at things. I, I don't think it's the future. I think it's part of the future. I think that if you look at algorithms, you look at like the last decade or so where we've had this data revolution, right? We've got all this data about everything everybody does. Well, we've got to marry the data science back to the people science. And, you know, Fitbit has all the data about your activity, but it's been shown to not really change your behavior. So how do we take all that data and map it to how humans actually make their choices? And so I think understanding human behavior, the people science, the behavioral science is going to make it so these algorithms... AI, all this data becomes that much more powerful. So I, I think that they complement each other. Right now, they feel like they're very isolated, right? The data people believe that's the way. And I don't know if I would say the behavioral people believe they're the only way. Most of them believe, I think, closer to why. It's, it's one of the tools in the toolkit. And I think that um, to overlook it would be a mistake. Uh, but I don't think it alone provides a solution. Got you. Uh, do, besides uh, reading PeopleScience.com, obviously, and, and your yes. books. Subscribe to the uh, newsletter. <laughs> of course, of course. But besides this, uh, what would you recommend the general public, uh, our listeners, young people, to, to do to learn a little bit more about how, how behavioral science works? Any, uh, any other books, websites, sure. your competitors? <laughs> sure. There's, uh, well, I mean, what's... Uh, good or bad, depending on your perspective, is there aren't really competitors to people science. We're sort of one of the only ones doing that. Um, and I don't mean, that's not a brag. I wish there were more. Uh, there's a ton of books out there. Um, the book Nudge is well-known Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize. Um, my co-author's book, Predictably Rational, was like an international, excuse me, an international bestseller, and that's very accessible, good to read. Uh, there's more and more media sort of being about it. You know, I hope to like develop some more sort of accessible videos and stuff. Uh, I, I think that just being aware of it, people will start to see that it's out there. Um, Annie Duke, who uh, is a well-known world champ poker player, recently published a book uh, in, about decision making, and it's sort of taken off. Uh, so I think that you know, hopefully now listeners have sort of planted this little bug in their head. They're going to start seeing it everywhere. And I think it is sort of everywhere. So I would encourage people to, to pay attention when they see it and to also seek it out. I mean, we have stuff on our website that's like, here are our 10 favorite books. And even here are other websites that we think you might learn from. So 
Um, the community is a pretty supportive community. There's not like, don't go to jeffchrysler.org. Boo! Uh, there's a lot of... Um, yeah, don't go to it. Don't, yeah, don't just, whatever. Don't, yeah, whatever. It's, it's all, all drowning jokes. It's yeah. all Smurfs. <laughs> um, there's, there's a ton of uh, opportunity out there. Awesome. Learn more. Uh, do you think that you have one contrarian view, either on financial literacy or on behavioral science, that uh, many of your peers would disagree with? One contrarian view that you hold pretty strongly about? I would say something I said at the top is contrarian if you broaden the definition of peers out to not just behavioral scientists, but like sort of people dealing with financial advice. And that is what I said at the top, that you cannot change human nature, but we can understand it enough to then create systems and environments so that we can behave better. In fact, I would say most behavioral scientists probably believe something very similar, so it's not contrarian, but I think it's contrarian broadly speaking in our society um, and as people look at how to make uh, how to help people make better choices like we're constantly pounding our heads saying you got to think more you got to you got to like change the way you look at stuff and think and no we can't like we but if we provide the tools and systems recognizing the mistakes we make we can get to a better place uh, just I, I was gonna end our interview on that note but I need to ask you this <laughs> it doesn't that paint a very dystopian future for us where for example uh, someone if, else just decides which way to exactly, go exactly if Google algorithm understands our voting decision better than us and they vote for us on every decision uh, that would best suit our interest uh, it would surpass the human behavior behavioral human nature sort of stuff uh, but but what are we doing there if we're not well, thinking sure. well I, I understand that concern and I think that uh, we still have the we still make the decision right we still have the option like good nudges as they're called still provide us the options they just frame it in a way that connects more to our rational side so you know for instance uh, a lot of companies have changed how when you sign up you started a company and you can put aside money in your 401k and it used to be that the default option was, no, I don't want to put it in. If you wanted to put money in your 401k, you selected yes. They've changed that. So now the default option is yes, and it's not no. And more people are putting money in, saving money for their retirement. Now, they designed that because they felt like that was a better choice. People can still choose no, right? People can ch still decide, I don't want to do that. I need this money for something else. So it's not like, in your example, Google's going to do the voting for us or make the changes the fear, which is still a rational fear to have, is that the, it is, does what they nudge us towards, is that what is actually best? Right. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that a nudge to be ethically designed has to be um, transparent. It has to be in the best interest of the person being nudged. And most importantly, it has to be opt-outable. Right? It doesn't, it's not, if you lock someone into something, that's not a behavioral design. That's decision-making. So, so we still want to nudge people to make their own decisions. Yeah. Right. Nudge. That, that's, a, that's such a great it's word. It's a cute I, little word. I know. It makes all this sort of human behavioral. Here's some candy yeah, exactly. and gummy bears. Give me your money. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the name of our show is Policy Punchline. I'll ask you the, uh, as the very last question, what do you think is the punchline here uh, for behavioral science, for financial literacy, uh, for any of the sort of the topics that, that we talked about today? What is the punchline? That is a loaded question for me. Uh, I mean, it's a comedian, sure. right? I mean, right. what's the, what's the punchline? I mean, I, I think that's how we. Well, we don't have much time. We're all going to die soon, so let's not wait around for other people to to provide us something good. Let's go get something good ourselves. 
Of course, of course. How's Thank you work? so much. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Mr. Kaiser. That, that was it was a wonderful note to end the conversation. It was such a wonderful conversation. And, Thanks. And great to great to finally meet you in person. Awesome. Let me know if you can edit this into something that saves people's lives. Uh, <laughs> twenty-seven listeners. Exactly. That we got be. more than twenty-seven. I'll make sure of that. <laughs> I'll tweet it out. We'll get to twenty-nine. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, awesome. Thank you so much again. Uh, this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. That was our interview with uh, Mr. Jeff. Chrysler, he is the uh, award-winning uh, a comedian, best-selling author, and a champion of behavioral economics, financial literacy. Go check out his website, peoplescience.com, uh, and also his book, Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter, and his first book, Get Rich Cheating, which yeah. is what I do all the time, you know. It's Get Rich Cheating, you know, yeah. So definitely check that out. Uh, go visit us on policypunchline.com and, and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Twitter, uh, all kinds of platforms. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.